Fear not. For behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. Have you ever noticed how often it is in the Bible that when an angel appears with a message for us, that's the opening words, fear not. I got to imagine that's probably how they say hello up in heaven, fear not. And so I thought today, since our theme is fear, that would be the appropriate way for me to say good morning to you. Fear not. For behold, I'm going to bring you a message of good news and encouragement and joy. So our theme today is the fear of Moses. Because in this sermon series, we're exploring emotions, the emotions of Moses. But he's a parallel to us. And we want to see how God takes the emotions that we deal with, helps us work through them in such a way that we can become the person he wants us to be and do the work he's called us to do and live the life he wants us to live. And so today we focus upon fear, the fear of Moses. Our text is Exodus chapter two. We're looking at Moses in his early years as he's growing up and becoming the man that we'll later know him to be. And as we look at this, we see the fear that he had to wrestle with. We'll start first, as our story does, with the fear of being wrong, the fear of being wrong. And it starts in verse 11. Now, here's the story. Verse 11 says that Moses had come of age. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching a sermon and and given a summary of the life of Moses, he mentions in verse 23 that the incident we're about to read, Moses was about 40 years old. And so here is Moses, about 40, and he's taking a walk and looking around, and, and he sees an Egyptian and a Hebrew, an Israelite, a, a Jew, and the Egyptian's given a, a beating to the, the Hebrew. Now Moses decides to intervene. Now, he's got divided loyalties because on the one hand, he's an Israelite by birth, by blood. But on the other hand, he was raised Egyptian in the palace of Pharaoh. And so he's looking at the two sides and he decides to come to the aid of the Israelite and he strikes against the the Egyptian. Now, we often read this story and we assume, well, it it had some tragic ending, but sometimes when when helping people, that's what happens. But we assume that Moses, well, he did what was right. After all, he's Moses. He's one of the great characters of the Old Testament. So you don't expect Moses to do wrong. But if you read the story carefully and look at the clues, they would suggest that what Moses does in this particular instance isn't necessarily as right as we might think, that it may be wrong and, and he knows it. For example, verse 12 says that first he looked this way and looked that way. That's a dead giveaway right there. Something's up. And he wanted to see if, make sure no one was looking. And then it says he killed the Egyptian and then he buried his body in the sand. He didn't take the body home to the family and say, I regret to inform you, but, but your family member was doing a, a criminal act. And, and he, we tried to reason with him, but he wouldn't, wasn't reasonable. And he doesn't do that. He hides the evidence, hoping nobody will find out what he did. Now, the next day, he's out for another walk, and this time he sees another conflict, but this time it's not Egyptian Hebrew, it's two Hebrews, and they're going at each other, apparently coming to blows because it says one was striking the other, so Moses, once again, comes in and intervenes, says, come on, fellas, come on now, let's don't be hitting each other, you know that's wrong to hit your fellow kinsmen. I like this response, one of them says, hey, wait a minute, who made you prince and judge over us? Now, I want you to think back when you were younger. Do you ever have an occasion when somebody was telling you what to do? You felt like they were being bossy. Do you ever use this line, hey, who died and made you king? Now, if you use that, I want you to know that's as old as Moses. That's been around for a long time. So who said you could be our prince and our judge and tell us what to do? What business is this of yours? And then he hits him with a kicker. He says, what, 
You got to kill me like you killed that Egyptian. And all of a sudden, Moses starts thinking about that. In fact, verse 14 says, oh, wait a minute, this thing is known. People know it. And it says in verse 14, and Moses was afraid. Oh, yeah, he was afraid. Because, you see, Moses was afraid of being wrong and then having to deal with the consequences of that wrong. And Moses was afraid. Now, I look back at that story. I wish we had more details. I, I wish I knew more about this incident of the killing of the Egyptian and, and whether it's justified or not justified. I do know Moses later when he grows up and, and he's writing the law. He'll tell us about defense. And there's a proper time to use deadly force against a deadly aggression. There's a time not so to do so. Exodus chapter 22, for example, in verses 2 and 3, he'll describe in verse 2 a scenario It's under cover of darkness when an intruder's in the home threatening your family. And if the death occurs, that can be justified. But, you know, in the next verse, he'll tell a different scenario. And he says, now, death occurs there. You were not justified. It didn't require that kind of force. You see, our law still does that today. You can defend yourself, defend others, and even use a great force. But we've also distinguished between when is it right and when is it wrong to use such force. And that sometimes you may be exonerated, sometimes prosecuted. just depends. So I wish I knew more about Moses' story and really how right or wrong he was in this action he took against the Egyptian. But you know what? No matter what, I can look at him and I see what he's doing and he shows evidence of a conscience that feels wrong. Now, let me give a lesson for me and you because we can get a lesson from this. And the lesson is this. When your conscience feels wrong, don't do it. Can you memorize that? Because if you do, that'd be a good rule for life. When your conscience feels wrong, don't do it. Now, that would have saved Moses a lot of grief. He'd played by that rule. I know the New Testament, Paul teaches it to us time and time again. Take, for example, in the book of Romans, chapter 2. He first, in verses 14 and 15, describes the conscience, because we all got one. He says in verse 14, now the Gentiles, that's what the Jews called everybody else. The people outside the, the faith. That's all the people of the world. Now, the the Gentiles, they don't have our law, Paul says. That is, a lot of these people grew up, they don't have our Bible. They don't have preachers and prophets teaching God's word to them. And yet he says, isn't it odd how sometimes Gentiles who don't have our law, they will live their lives, well, doing what our law says. And it's true. Because oftentimes people outside of our faith, well, they'll have some of the same ethical code we have. You know, don't lie, cheat and steal, don't assault, don't murder. Parents will put their kids to bed and teach them the same rules that we teach our children. Paul says, how is that possible? Because they instinctively know some of these truths. The law is written on their heart. Verse 15, he identifies it's the conscience. We all got one. The creator put it there. And he describes how the conscience works. He says, sometimes it accuses, sometimes it defends. You know how this works. You felt it. If you're thinking about doing something, say, for example, take something that's not yours, now, it's not really stealing. It's a small thing. And they won't miss it. They got plenty. But you're thinking about taking it and you first look this way and that. That's the giveaway. Don't do that. That's wrong. Or sometimes it's after the fact. It's after you do something. At the time, it felt pretty good. But then you do it. And afterwards, you feel, well, I feel guilty. I feel cheap. I feel dirty. I feel ashamed. I, I feel like people know and are thinking badly of me. I don't even want to look at you in the eye. It's, Listen, that's your conscience saying, don't do that. Now, sometimes what the conscience will do is make you feel good about what you do. I find, though, it's oftentimes not in front of the action. It's oftentimes after the action I feel good about what I did. You take, for example, you're driving in for church. And there's someone on the side of the road, got the hood up or whatever. 
Now, they need some help, and you tell yourself, I, I'm not a professional mechanic. Maybe somebody else better than me can stop, and I don't know. They may need help. Maybe they need fun. I don't know what they need, but I'm headed to church, and I don't want to be late for church. So you don't want to stop, but you do. And when you stop and you're helping them with whatever they've got and they're telling you their story, oh, wow, their life is coming apart and they're dealing with this, 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 and now I've got to deal with this. And you say, oh, calm down. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of this. And you help them and you send them on their way. And you know what happens? You get in your car and you drive and you feel good. Now, you didn't. You didn't want to stop. But afterwards, you, you feel good. You're glad you did. That's the conscience telling you, yeah, that's the right thing, helping people. Paul says, we all got one. Now, in chapter 14 of Romans, he gives you an ethical rule. Just how you can use your conscience to make good decisions and not commit sin. It's the last two verses, 22 and 23, in a chapter where he's talking about how in the church we'll sometimes have different opinions on some things, whether it's right or wrong. And sometimes these opinions aren't because God himself has given us a rule because we created our own rules by our traditions. You know, in every culture, we create traditions that aren't necessarily what God himself requires. And Paul says, so you've got to learn how to live and let live and let some people follow their conscience. You follow yours. Now, in this case, he's talking about these Jewish Christians. Moses taught them not to eat certain foods. Don't eat pork and this and that. These Gentile Christians never grew up with such things. Now they're fussing about what's right or wrong. And Paul says, listen, if you were to ask me, I'd tell you we have no food rule uh, in the Christian faith. Moses did, but we don't. And so you can eat the pork if you want to. Or don't eat it if you don't want to, but leave each other alone. It's have your faith before God, your clear conscience, in other words. He gets into other things. Should we still be observing these Passover, Pentecost festivals or not? And they disagree. Paul says, do what you want. It's not a rule. So leave each other alone and do what you can do with a clear conscience for God. And that's why when he gets to the very end, he'll give you a rule. He says, make sure that whatever you do, you do it. With faith in God, that is clear conscience before God, and happy is the one that can do that. But he says, but listen, if you do something, and it's not from faith, that is, you don't have this clear conscience before God, it'll be a sin, because whatever you do without faith is a sin. You know what he's basically saying is this, if your conscience says no, then don't do it, because if you do it, that'll be wrong, wrong for you. Now, let me tell you, I grew up in the Deep South. Christian in the Deep South, we had a long list of thou shalt nots. In fact, my list was probably longer than yours where you grew up. Because we added so many other things that real Christians don't do, and that's how I was raised. Now, I get older, I study the scriptures. A lot of those aren't there. It's just part of our good southern Christian tradition, but it's not there. Raised my daughter up here in Cincinnati. I didn't teach her all of my rules. I just taught her the scriptures. And we would discuss sometimes the difference between the way Christians are here, but the way some of my family is there. And I'd say, yes, because. And I wanted to respect the differences, but realize that she wasn't bound by the same rules I grew up with. But you know what? There are some of those things. I still don't do, even though I know I could and I would teach you that you could, but I don't because it doesn't feel right. And the conscious rule is if something doesn't feel right, don't do it. You know, if you'll follow that rule, it'll keep you out of a lot of trouble. And so that's what you do. Now, in First Timothy, chapter four, verses four and five, Paul takes that rule and then he combines it with another rule together. This is powerful. He says, and once again, another chapter where people are disagreeing over what is right and what is wrong for Christian to do. Paul says, listen, in this world, there's a lot of things out there that you can do, a lot of things you can enjoy. He says, listen, the key is that when you're enjoying these things that God has given, make sure you can do it with thanksgiving and and know the truth. And so verse five, he says, because they can be sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, the word of God part is real simple. What's the Bible say? Does the Bible say it's okay? Does the Bible say it's not okay? Listen, good rule of thumb. If the Bible says no, don't do it. 
Well, you and I know that. If the Bible says don't do something, then don't do it. It'll be wrong. And then the second part, that word prayer in verse 5, the word thanksgiving in verse 4, what he's talking about there is, can you turn to God in prayer and say thanks for what I'm about to enjoy, amen, and then do it See if, with a clear conscience? It's the conscious rule. Think about this, for example. Here's a man or woman off on a trip somewhere, staying in a hotel, spouse back home. Running to someone else is also traveling. One thing leads to another. The next thing you know, you're tempted. You're, you're up in a hotel room. You know, before anything happens, before you get into bed, would you first stop and say, God, thank you for this blessing I'm about to enjoy. Amen. <laughs> Probably not. Actually, what would happen is you would hope he's so busy running the universe, he's not noticing what you're up to. You see, that's your conscience rule right there. Can you approach God in prayer and say thanks with a clear conscience or not? Basically, what Paul is saying is this. Listen, Bible and conscience, God gave us both. If the Bible says no, don't do it. If conscience says no, don't do it. Sometimes they'll both say it. Sometimes it'll be one or the other. Either way, Paul says don't. If they say no, don't do it. It'd be wrong. You know, if Moses had played by that rule, kept him out a lot of grief. Now, he doesn't have the Bible yet. He'll write the first scriptures later, but he's got the conscience. And as he's looking to the right and looking to the left, Moses should have listened to his conscience and said no. Well, that's the first fear that Moses deals with in our story, the fear of being wrong and then having to deal with the consequence of that. But there's a second fear in this text. It's in verse 15. It's the fear of being hurt. After all, he's done something now that has consequences. Now he's got the fear of being hurt. Verse 15 says that when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. And Moses took off and fled to the land of Midian, a place outside of Egyptian jurisdiction, a place where he felt he could be safe. Now, when I look at this, I'm actually on his side. I I was a bit critical of what he did at the beginning. He wasn't sure he did the right action there against the Egyptian. But I'm all behind him now, this fear and flight that he's doing. First, the fear. He is afraid of getting hurt, of getting killed. I think that's a reasonable fear. You know, fear is one of these emotions God has created within us. It's a natural emotion. It's not something to be ashamed of because it's a trigger that alarms us to the dangers that are there. There's the present danger, the danger I can see right in front of me, and I I ought to be afraid. Take, for example, I I like to run. I'm a long-distance runner, and I like to run trails sometimes. But I tell you, if I'm in the Smokies and I'm coming around a corner and there's a bear, I'm a bit afraid. You should be, too. That's a present danger I can see. I know what could happen. Or maybe you're working the night shift late. You're going to your car now, and it's a dimly lit parking lot, a parking garage. You hear a noise. You see movement. A little bit of fear comes. You ought to be afraid because you know that bad people oftentimes do bad things in such situations. You know what can happen. A little bit of fear, that's, that's probably right. You see, sometimes we're afraid of the danger I can see. Sometimes it's the danger I anticipate. I, I, I can't really see it, but I, I, I'm fearful of it. And no matter what it is, fear is a natural thing the Creator built within us. Now, the key is know what to do with it. That's why I need to give you a rule for life when it comes to fear. Here's the rule. When facing trouble, don't lose heart. That's our rule. When facing trouble, don't lose heart. What you'll find is the scriptures will talk about fear and how to deal with it. Fear itself, not the negative. It's like all of our emotions. It's like what Paul does with anger in the book of Ephesians. Be angry, but don't sin. Anger wasn't the problem. That's a natural feeling. It's what you did with it. Same is true for fear. It's what you do with it. Do you control your fear, or does your fear control you? And that's the key. So, for example, as you're working through the fear of danger and trouble, the fear of being hurt, 
you got, you got to first see if your reaction of fear is is compatible with the amount of danger. That is, are you overreacting and getting panicky? No, make sure it fits. Make sure that your reactions are consistent with your character, that you don't do something you later have to apologize for and say, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I was afraid or say something you have to later regret. and say, I don't usually speak like that. And I certainly didn't mean to hurt you, but I was scared. Now, make sure that your actions are under control as you react to the fear. You, you take your feelings of fear and you lay them before God, cast your burdens before him and, and put them in prayer and let him know how you feel and ask him to help. Do you notice that's what Jesus did? Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. He, he, he took what he felt and what did he feel oh, it describes it. Anxiety as he's looking for for what's coming next. A crucifixion, a horrible death on the cross. Anybody in their right mind would be nervous about that. And he puts that before God. He says, if it's possible, Father, take this cup away from me. You know what he did next? Though, after he put that before God, he said, but not my will, your will be done. And he got up and he proceeded to do what needed to be done. And that's what you do with fear. If you've got it under control, you go ahead and lay your fears before God. You ask for his help and then you do what needs to be done, because that's how you control fear. That's why, for example, when a soldier is in the midst of battle, he should feel fear that he might die. But he also should get up and then do what he's been trained to do. A policeman who walks into a dangerous situation doesn't quite know what all is back there. Still, he ought to feel a little bit of anxiety and still step forward and do what he needs to do. Or you, as a parent or grandparent, walk in that child through that dark parking lot or that garage and you're hearing those noises, whatever, and you pull them in close and then you proceed to get them home safely and you do what you need to do. That's what we do with fear. Get it under control and then move forward. We don't lose heart. You know, there's a lot of things we're afraid of. I think of fear of flying. A lot of people have that. And I have a little bit of that. I have that every time I do the takeoff and landings because I statistically, that's if there's going to be trouble, that's typically where it is. So I'm always a little apprehensive on those two and then the rest of the time I relax. Now, I fly, even though i got friends who won't fly because they're afraid. Oh, I fly because I'm a rational guy. I know the statistics. I'm safer flying than I am driving in my car on the interstate as far as fatality, so I fly. Now, turbulence, I don't care for that. And I'll tell you, I've been to India several times. And every time I fly from Europe to India and cross that ocean there, I've had terrible turbulence. I'm gripping, and I'm thinking, why do I do this? I'll tell you why, once again. I know the statistics. You don't get a lot of airline crashes in turbulence over that ocean. It, they get through it every day. They go back and forth through it. I just hang on and get through it because, well, I'm afraid, but I also know that this thing can be done. And you, you, you push yourself and you move forward. You don't let fear hold you back. Or snakes. I am scared to death of snakes. And I think every one of you should be as well. I think that's a reasonable fear. Now, I, I will tell you, as a, as a small boy growing up in North Florida, I, I've got good reason to be afraid of snakes. I'm running through the brush with my brothers. I stepped on a rattlesnake. I think after you do that, you ought to be able to be afraid of snakes, and so I am. Now, my fear of snakes, though, goes to all snakes, and so it's the poison and the non-poisons. Even the garter snakes boys played with, I didn't play with them. I don't like snakes. Now, I may not like snakes. Still, I try not to let that interfere with what needs to be done. And if there's one in the garage and it needs to be taken out, I don't tell my wife to go get it. I go ahead and get it. I, I keep a little distance, but I still get that thing out of there. I, I, I'll deal with it. Or I remember the time I took my wife and daughter to a reptile show and the guy showing off all his creatures and such as that. Great show. Then he got to, a, I think it was a blue indigo, kind of python type thing. And he's saying, these things are harmless. They won't hurt you. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And he says, I need a volunteer. Now, my hands were folded. And he still said, sir, would you... Would you assist me? Now, my daughter thought that was great. Come on, Dad. She's getting her camera ready. 
my wife's whispering to me, saying, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. But I'm thinking, oh, it's my daughter. I don't want to disappoint her. And I got up there and I was frozen, of course. And he wrapped that thing around me. And as he's talking, that thing's going through my shirt sleeve and it's working its way through. And I'm just thinking, I hope this is not the one in a million blue indigo that the mother forgot telling her. We don't bite people. Remember that. And as he's going through and I'm just I'm just dealing with this. It finally it's over. But, you know, we all got our snakes that scare us, right? Whatever that may be that you get fearful of. You know what we do with our fear? We, we don't lose heart. But we, we proceed and do what needs to be done. You know, that's what the psalmist teaches. Psalm chapter 32, verse 33 and 34. You know what he says to us? He says, I, I want you, as you're thinking about how to deal with the troubles that come, I want you to love the Lord. And remember, he preserves those who are faithful to him. So be of good courage. Be courageous. And he'll strengthen your heart. That is, if you're faithful to him. Put your hope in him. Now, keep, keep, keep that idea in mind. We always think of God giving us strength and courage. But you know what? There was a, a, a combination there. You be courageous. That's why the scriptures tell us, fear not. You be courageous. And he'll add to your courage his strength. And then for the two, you'll, you'll get through whatever you're getting through. And that's how it works, folks. We've got to muster up what we've got. Call upon him to give us what he's got, and, and then let's deal with life. You know, there's one more part of the Moses story that we've got to deal with, though. starts in verse 15 once again. And this is the fear, not so much of being wrong. He's already been through that. And the fear of being hurt. Now it's the fear of being lost. Fear of being lost. Verse 15 says he gets to the land of Midian, this safe place. But now he's a stranger in a strange land. It says he... Meets these seven young daughters. They're the daughters of a local priest of whatever religion he's in. But these daughters are there with their flock trying to get water for them out of the town watering hole. But got all these men, shepherds, and they come in, push the girls out of the way, and they're watering their flock. And Moses decides to intervene once again and, and help the ladies. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, young man, single, seven daughters. Of course he, he stepped in. It could be that, but i tell you something else, though. You're seeing a pattern with Moses of how he likes to reach out and help people in trouble, defend the defenseless. I see a good man here trying to help. He helps the ladies, and he waters their flock, and when they get home, they tell their father what happened. The father says, well, where is he? Why didn't you bring him home so we can, well, show him gratitude and hospitality, you know, the way you should treat a man like this. Now, it may be that the girls left Moses way back at the well but you know what? They were raised by this man. And maybe they knew exactly what their father would say. Maybe they brought Moses to the doorstep, but out of respect for his authority, just waiting for him to invite him in. Maybe Moses standing right there. And they, whatever the case, they bring him in, give him a meal, give him a place to stay. And Moses has now found friends, found a family, really, that he'll stay with. It also says in the text that the guy gave him one of the daughters to marry. If you're thinking, wow, culture back in that day was so strange. You pull off to the side of the road to help someone get a flat tire. And next thing you know, they give you a daughter to marry. It's probably more involved than that. Because as Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, when he's telling this summary of the life of Moses, he says in verse 30 that he, he stayed in Midian for 40 years. So yes, over time, he'll develop a friendship and a relationship with this family. And at some point, the father will give him one of the daughters and then at some point as our verse says a son will be born their first child now if you're thinking boy things are finally turning around for moses life is now finally turning out good for this man yeah it is it is he's got a family now he's got a wife and now he's got the joy of that first child what a great day he names a son names him gershom gershom's a hebrew word it sounds a lot like the word alien 
foreigner, stranger, and Moses says, I'm a stranger in a strange land. You know what's happening here on a day of joy? Because life did, in fact, turn good for him. It's a bittersweet day because while it's good, it's a good he doesn't get to share with his family and friends back home. He, he, he can't go back home. And, and so Moses is torn between the good he's now experiencing, but also the sadness he's experiencing, the loss that he's had that he thinks he'll never regain again. You know, life is like that. Sometimes you'll take a loss and you don't get it back. We talk about rags to riches. Moses is the opposite. He's riches to rags. Had it all and then lost it. And that's what happens sometimes. We know the unpredictable ups and downs of life. And sometimes we have to deal with the fear of losing things we once had and not sure if we'll ever get them back. But we need a lesson for that, don't we? A life lesson. Here it is. When life takes a downward turn, don't give up. That's what we've got to remember. When life takes a downward turn, don't give up. And it will take its downward turns. And you know that so well because we're living it today. Think, for example, about our economy. You just never know where it's going to go. And you could be, for example, getting ready for retirement or in retirement, and all of a sudden it takes a dive, and now what am I going to do? Or employment. You know, it used to be you could get a job and, and, and do good work and, and work your years, put your time in, and, and then they'll give you a, a nice going-away party and you retire. It's not like that anymore, is it? Now with downsizing and layoffs, you just never know if you'll have the same job next year. And on and on with the things we deal with. And sometimes, you know, we know the stories where a person, their life goes down, but then they work through it and then finally it comes back up and it's good again. That's how Hollywood tells the story that when they do movies, they they always give it that twist. That's how the book of Job is. Job, he goes down and then he comes up. And it's nice when that happens, but you know what? Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes you'll take a loss and you don't recover from it. This is your now your new life. Like when the doctor gives you that diagnosis and you've got a terminal condition. You're not coming out of this one. And all of a sudden, here's a loss you don't get to recover from. Or you lose someone that's dear to you and you're not going to get them back no matter what. And nothing quite replaces the thing you've lost. This is now your new life. You say, that's the way it works. We're not promised you get to come back up high once again. You get whatever you get. And that's why when life takes a downward turn, we've got to learn how to not to give up. To never give up, not to give up on God and our faith and trust in Him. Not to give up on His Word and the encouragement it gives us in the church and the encouragement we get from being there. We've got to learn how not to give up on life and give up on things. We've got to keep pressing forward. You know, the Apostle Paul teaches this. He was this... Head Pharisee, if you will, one of the one of the top guys. He had it all, and then he became a Christian, and then he lost it all. The persecuted became the persecuted. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, I, I've learned how to be content, to be at peace in all things, whatever the circumstances may be. He says, I know what it's like to be abased, to be put down. I know what it's like to abound and be riding high. I know what it's like to be full. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be abounding with prosperity and what it's like to be in need. But here's what I've learned. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what you have to learn. Whatever life throws at you, I've got to learn how to get through it. And I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. That's why I give you Isaiah, the prophet. Once he chose to accept the job of prophet, his life went crazy. Because he and his family then faced the persecution of the people who didn't like what he was preaching. And he'll, he'll ultimately end up with a terrible death, a horrible way to die. Because that's what they threw at him. But you know what Isaiah says in chapter 8? Verse 17, I will wait on the Lord, who's turned away from the house of Jacob. That is, today, my life is not good. I feel like God has turned away. I'm not feeling his goodness and love and mercy today. Today, my life is bad, but I'm going to wait. 
I'm going to wait on the Lord because I do believe that this is not the end of the story. There's something good's coming. Don't know what it is. Don't know when it's coming, but I'm going to wait for him and put my hope in him. And that's what you and I have to learn to do. And the something good, it won't necessarily be what you had. You may never get that back. It may not even be as good as what you had. You may not ever get back there. But I know this isn't the end of the story. He'll, he'll do something, and I have to learn how to wait on the Lord. Put my hope in him that something good is coming. And that's how we deal with our fears. You know, it's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 11, when the Hebrew writer is going through the roll call of the saints of the Old Testament, the, our heroes of the faith, he gets to the Moses story. Here's what he says in verse 27. He says, and Moses, when he stood before Pharaoh the king, he was not afraid of the king. I'm thinking, are you kidding? Guy looks pretty afraid to me. Oh, no, that's a different Moses. That's 40 years later after he grows up and he's not afraid of the king. We're seeing the early Moses when he's still dealing with fears. Which one is more like you? Are you are you like that later, more mature Moses? You've worked through a lot of things in life. You're feeling pretty strong right now in your confidence in the Lord. Are you still back in an earlier stage yet? With a lot of potential, but a lot of work yet to be done as God is working with you and trying to develop you into what you can become. I don't know which one you are, but I know what we've got to do. We've got to learn how to put our hope and confidence in the Lord and to wait on him and let him help us work through our fear so that we can become the courageous Christians that he wants us to be. Hey, would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this story of Moses, for the encouragement it gives us, for the way it speaks to our lives as well. Now help us, Father, to be courageous, courageous in your strength, courageous in your power, and to live the life that you have set before us, to to proceed and do what needs to be done, and in all things glorify you. We thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, and we pray in his holy name. Amen. Hey, glad you're here this morning. And listen, if you're a first-time visitor, we'd like to take a moment and greet you if you've got the time. And so as you leave these doors, third door on the left is the hearth room. Why don't you stop by give us a chance to meet you. For all of you who came prepared today to give an offering, be sure to put it in the offering box out there. And for all of you that came, glad you're here. Hope that the time of fellowship and worship and digging into the Word will be an encouragement for your life this week. God bless you.